Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 4th, 2021. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and once again, we are here with our friend Truthids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, and this is part 51 already of this series of discussions. This might be our longest-running series ever by the time it's completed. In our last presentation, we discussed the Book of Nezar's vision in Daniel chapter 2 and the series of world empires of which it prophecies, ending with Rome. This prophecy proves once again that the Germanic tribes are the true people of Yahweh God, as it was they who had destroyed and supplanted those empires, ultimately establishing Christian kingdoms in their place. Then we moved on to a very similar vision which Daniel himself had, and which was described in Daniel chapter 7. But while the explanation of the vision of the four beasts clearly describes the same series of four empires, it is broader in scope and portrays in greater detail some of the things which would happen after the passing of those four empires. So here we are in the middle of that discussion, and when it is completed, we must conclude once again that the only valid interpretation of the character of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 also proves that the Germanic tribes are the Israelites of the Old Testament scriptures. Good morning, Truthwits. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So here we're continuing. And um, if anything, this once again, as always, shows that everything in the Bible is, at least especially from the New Testament onwards and the empires, is all Eurocentric, right? That um, wherever th these empires would rule over the the Adam, Adam kind, the 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 law of men, it would rule over mankind, and we gradually see it shifting gradually to Europe. So so if you think about it logically, it shows you that the white race was gradually shifting to Europe, that the other countries were diminishing, getting overrun and collapsing, and that's exactly what happened with Egypt, Assyria, and, and all the East, and that's why it gradually moves to Europe, and then from about you know, from the Pope onwards and all that, it's only about Europe. We never get a mention of the East ever again, except when the uh, Arabs came, right, and started invading us and attacking us. And as you as you have explained, it's um, seen, I'm just thinking of the words, the pits of hell, it's death and hell coming over to destroy us. And that's exactly how we should see all those places now, right? And this, as you said, always proves that the Europeans are the Israelites, right, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely. I don't see how even even mainstream church pastors don't see this or refuse to see this. That the Book of Nezar was told that this series of empires, of which he was the head of gold, would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. And if you look at the world over which that series of empires ruled, it was always the predominantly white world. There were some marginal areas, right, such as Bactria, 
Sogdiana, which are basically on the border of ancient India, and Ethiopia, which by the 7th century BC had been overrun with Nubians, there are those marginal areas where there are non-white elements or where we may think there are non-white elements. Because Bactria and Sogdiana, Central Asia was very white 3,000 years ago. It was only predominantly mixed, perhaps in, in the last 1,500 to 2,000 years, that these people started mixing with Dravidians and, and East Asians and, and other races to be what they are today. If you read all of the classical histories and, and the, the, the descriptions of those places, the Bactrians, the Sogdians, Sogdiana, the people of Sogdia, that they were all white. They were white Scythians and, and Persians and people of, of our race, which originated in Mesopotamia. They were not yellow, non-white at that time. So I, I don't, if, if you look at the center of these empires and yes it it shifted west right it it went from babylon and and to the persians and then it went to greece and and the persians and the medes which was really a shift northward and and then a, it went to the greeks and to the romans it shifted west as the center of white population shifted west and as the, the East, the nations of the East became decadent and weakened and began to intermix with the other races, and they did not turn brown until the Arab conquests and, and the Islamic conquests, which followed. So that's explained in prophecy in Daniel chapter 8 and in Revelation chapter 9. And, and that'll be the subject of a future proof. But this, I don't know how churchmen could imagine that the world was any more than the white nations over which these empires had ruled, because that was considered in scripture, in prophecy, to be the world and to be wheresoever the children of men dwell. The Babylonians never ruled over China. The Greeks never ruled over South America. None of these empires ever ruled over sub-Saharan Africa. So at that time, anybody outside of that world was not considered the children of men. It's that simple. So we have to look at who these empires ruled over. Of course, there were always some barbarian white nations outside of these empires. But for the most part, these empires ruled over most of the white world at the time that each of them existed. And they only ruled over the white world, except for those few marginal areas on the outskirts of it. Yeah, and those areas outside of um, wherever the children of men dwelt, that they always had people there, right? Like browner people who, who were there 
but they're just ignored in scripture for thousands of years and and it's only in the past century few centuries have they even become relevant because we've built them up and now they still want to come to our nation and the jews use them for us. So, so it's only the past few centuries that we've even noticed their existence right well well right for for example the nubians overran egypt in the 7th century BC and Nubian chieftains who were black from what we know today as Sudan they had ruled over Egypt for about 75 years until the Egyptians were able once again to rise up and overthrow them so the Egyptians came to rule their own nation once again I believe in the 6th century in the early 6th century BC these dates might be off a little. I'm going off the top of my head. In the middle of the 8th century BC, I believe that's when the Nubian invasion occurred. And it lasted until the early 7th century BC, if I get this right. And in the middle of the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah had written in Isaiah chapter 43 that Yahweh God had given up Egypt, Ethiopia, and Cush for the sake of the children of Israel. Now, that is basically a geopolitical statement because the children of Israel were going to be taken into Assyrian captivity whether they liked it or not. And they often appealed to the Egyptians for military aid against the Assyrians. So, and the Babylonians. So, if Egypt is overrun with Nubians, the children of Israel have no one to turn to for aid against these empires. And they didn't. Isaiah already wrote that the Egyptians were given up for the sake of the children of Israel. And that just happens to be around the same time that the Nubians invaded Egypt. So the children of Israel had nowhere to turn. They had nowhere to look for military aid against the Assyrians. And they were taken into Assyrian captivity. They had little power to resist. They tried to resist. They tried to make a league with the Assyrians, but the Assyrians had also conquered the Syrians. So they had nowhere to turn, and they were all taken into captivity. And Egypt and Ethiopia became basically Nubian hellholes at that same time. It, it's if, if you understand history correctly, the prophets are true, and there's reasons why Isaiah said that. So, a hundred years, probably about 120 years after Isaiah, we have the prophet Jeremiah, and he wrote, he wrote an obscure line, and I'm going to call it an obscure line in, in his prophecy which many denominational Judeo-Christians today try to use to tell us that Ethiopians can be Christians or, or that Ethiopians are okay or whatever. How They try to portray this line in a positive light. So in Jeremiah chapter 13, we read, in verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And what we have there is a statement, basically, that the Ethiopian, he can't change his skin, the leopard can't change his spots. So since it's your intrinsic nature to do evil, it's not going to be possible for you to do good. It, it's a rhetorical argument that is being presented here. But Hebrew, the Hebrew language employed parallelisms. And the first part of that verse is a parallelism. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And a parallelism is a repeat of the same concept consecutively using different words. So the, the skin of the Ethiopian is being equated to the spots of a leopard. Well, by Jeremiah's time, Ethiopia had been ruled over by these invading Nubians for quite some time, and the people became half black and half white, just like the skin of a leopard. They all became mixed. They became bastards. So no, the Ethiopian can't change his skin, and the leopard, just like the leopard, can't change his spots. So we, we have these these clues in scripture as to what had happened, this clue in scripture as to what had happened to those Ethiopians that God announced that he gave up for the benefit of the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 43. So by the time of the Hellenistic period and the time of the New Testament and the, and the Roman rule over the East, the, door, the, the Macedonian Greeks had invaded Egypt and the rule of the Ptolemies had begun. And what we know as Egypt in the Hellenistic and Roman periods was Macedonian Egypt. They were Macedonian Greeks in Egypt, ruling over Egypt, and they were colonizing and settling in Egypt in rather large numbers. So those Egyptians, of, of the true native Egyptians, like you said, they became marginalized. They were always kind of there, but they weren't the central maintainers of Egyptian society at the time. They were just marginalized Egyptians that were a second class of citizen in Ptolemy's Egypt, in, in Greek Egypt or Macedonian Egypt, however you want to describe that, Ptolemaic Egypt. The people who ruled over Egypt and, and who were the citizens of substance were the Macedonians. They were Macedonian Greeks. So you do have some artwork depicting these swarthy Egyptians from the time. And even Herodotus, the Egyptians that he had met, he called them black, even though they were mixed. He called them black. The Egyptians that he had met in between the Nubian possession of Egypt and the time of the coming of Alexander when the Greeks conquered Egypt. Herodotus is writing right smack in the middle of that period, 150 years perhaps before Egypt became Greek, and he called them black because that's what he saw, even though they may have not been that they may not have been black as the sub-Saharan Africans are black. 
even if they were mixed, Herodotus would have called them black because Herodotus and the Greeks were absolutely white. So yeah, if you yeah. see, uh, if you see a race of mixed race, you just assume they're all black, right? Right. That you, that's generally how white people see them. Yes. So Herodotus had called the Egyptians black, and Herodotus didn't know he he thought that they were Egyptians. He didn't understand the history of Egypt. The, the way that we can understand it today from many different sources and from archaeology. Herodotus couldn't dig the ancient pharaohs out of the ground to see that they were white. Yeah, isn't there another verse in Jeremiah where he mocks Egypt? I'm not sure if it's Jeremiah where he says it's like a dog with a loud bark, as though they're powerless, but they act as though they still have the power that they had centuries before. I don't have that at hand. Okay, But Egypt did become relatively powerless. When they overthrew the Nubians in the, in the later part of the 7th century BC, around the time of King Josiah of Judah, there was Pharaoh Necho, and Herodotus wrote about Pharaoh Necho at length in, in his work on Egypt. Necho too, he died in 595 BC. Josiah had died, I believe, in 612 or 614 BC from a battle that he went out. Necho had passed through Palestine, passed through Judah with his armies, and route to Carchemish because he wanted to win Carchemish, which was the ancient Hittite capital. He 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 wanted to win that over to Egypt because the Egyptians had claims on that. And Assyria had fallen to the Scythians, Persians, and Babylonians. They had destroyed the Assyrian Empire. So right after the fall of Assyria, Necho led his armies, and I believe it was about 610 BC, if I remember correctly. Necho had led his armies up to go to Carchemish and reclaim that part of the Assyrian Empire for the Egyptians. Well, Josiah went out to face him in battle, and Josiah was killed by an archer, I believe, 609 BC, according to Wikipedia. I think it was 610. It doesn't really matter. It was right after the fall of Nineveh to the Assyri- to the Scythians and, and the Persians. So that was sort of, and, and Herodotus, wrote of, Herodotus wrote of that. He got some of the names screwed up, but he wrote of that, and that's the same account which is in our Bibles. But and, and he didn't write about it in as much detail, but he did write of it. And that was probably the last breath of life for Egypt as an empire, What was that attempt to take Carchemish back for themselves, which didn't last. And from there on, Egypt was just remained marginalized until the coming of Alexander. It, it tried to become a great power again under Necho, but it really didn't make it, right? Yeah, I think uh, even the Macedonians, although they probably originally stayed separate, gradually they would start mixing with, um, you know, the, the natives there, right? The the mixed Egyptians, it's inevitable. You can't stop it. That Eventually the men will start having multiple wives and, and all that, and you'll start getting all these bastards, right? And gradually um, I think the same thing happens to the Macedonian uh, Egypt, it gradually became all mixed. 
because when Caesar came there, I believe he made a comment in his um, in his war commentaries that it was a bastard race that dwelt there, and if there was a race made for treachery, it would be the Egyptians, right? That that's what he said, quoting him. Right, the Egyptians were no longer respected in international community. That they were subject to the Persians for most of the time of the Persian Empire. They were subjected. I mean, there were campaigns. The Persians actually had to conduct military campaigns in Egypt to keep them subject. But by the time of Alexander the Great, it was basically over for Egypt. And it's a hellhole to this very day. Egypt was... The Egypt of of Antony and Cleopatra was Macedonian Greek and Roman. It wasn't Egyptian at all. But the bastards were always there. And of course, it's inevitable that the Macedonians, the, the Macedonian people in Egypt, or the Roman people even in Egypt later on, would have begun to mix with some of the Egyptians. That, that It happens all the time, so we can't imagine that it didn't happen then. That's true. Egyptians were taken by as slaves into, into Greece and Rome, and, and they eventually mixed in with the native populations of Greece and Rome. Just like the Judeans, the Edomites, who were taken as slaves to Italy in the first century, became southern Italians, eventually, and became indistinguishable from the Italians. And that's a process that happens over centuries. It doesn't happen overnight. We should continue our discussion. These are long digressions, right? We should continue our discussion of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, unless you have anything else. We we have another digression, though. We have the Franks to speak about. So before yeah, yeah. I begin, um, so so it's um you know it's hard to tell when exactly each Germanic tribe became fully Christian. You know there was constant back and forth. There'd be Christian and then pagan, but but um, uh, so a lot of people said that the Franks became Christian quite early, right? When when um, Rome started to collapse, they came into Gaul. They invaded. Uh, by this time, they'd already been mercenaries for the Romans for quite a while. So, you know, their um, military had, had vastly improved. They had the same armor, their javelins, same as the Romans, basically, by that time. And they started carving out, you know, their own territory. And Clovis, I believe, was the first king. And he was competing with the other tribes, the Alamanni. And it was actually his wife who com- kind of convinced him to convert to Christianity. She, uh, They had a son, and she secretly baptized him. Not that baptism, you know, is good, uh, but the son died, and uh, Clovis was furious, told her never to do that again, and then she did it again on their second child, and it got sick, but it survived. And then um, Clovis said, okay, uh, he had a big battle coming up with the rival Alamannis, you know, for who would be, who would rule all over Gaul, or which became France, of course. And he said, he prayed to God and said, if I get victory, then I will convert to Christianity. Uh, unfortunately, it would be Catholicism, Christianity, and he won the battle, and that's when he converted. So uh, the land became the land of the Franks, and that's how they became Christian, uh, according to, you know, the tales. Right. There, there, are, there were battles between the various Germanic tribes, as to 
to decide who was going to take which parts of the Roman Empire. That That's evident in, in history. It's just obscure because the recorded history among those Germanic tribes was wanting at the time. I, I mean, I don't think they had any at all that was actually recorded. If it wasn't recorded by Greeks or Romans until the time of Jordanus in the, in the 7th century, I believe, then it wasn't recorded. Jordanus was the first Gothic historian. The Anglo-Saxon kings had chronicles, though. They had chronicles in Britain, so they weren't completely illiterate, and, and they did have a sense of history. It's just that no history that we know of survived in, in any great or organized form. What we have things like the Nibelungen Lied it is a is a Frankish a piece of Frankish poetry, or at least it's written from a Frankish perspective. The Burgundians of Varms, but they didn't even stay in Varms. They ended up in central France after the population shifts of of the fifth and sixth centuries after the fall of Rome. A lot of the stories in, in the Nibelungen Lied are, are similar to those in Snorri's Eddas, in the Poetic Edda. However, some of the characters have different roles. Some of the attributes of certain characters are assigned to other characters, so, it, so they're not very consistent. And in the Nibelungen Lied, that's probably how I should pronounce it. Attila the Hun was portrayed in a positive light as a civilized man, even though he was an adversary. And in the Eddas of Snorri, he's portrayed, if I remember properly, he's portrayed quite negatively. So there were different opinions of historical characters in the Germanic literature that does survive. In Jordanes, in his History of the Goths, Attila the Hun is portrayed as a devil and, and a short yellow squat monster. And, and that's just political propaganda, as far as I'm concerned. The Burgundian yeah, but, princes... Um, any war chief who rules over other tribes is going to have to be ruthless, right, to keep his position. That That's just the way it is if you're in war... So, you know, he probably was civilized, but he would have to be uh, have a ruthless streak to maintain his grip on power. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and the Burgundian princes had no problem marrying their sister off to Attila the Hun. They had no, no qualms against that, which they did. Their sister Krimheld is her name in the Nibelungen lead. And she was the wife of the Rhenish prince Siegfried, who was the hero of the account. And when Siegfried was killed, Krimheld was married off to, to Attila. And, and there were no qualms against that at the time. They probably did it because they, they wanted to be his allies, in my opinion. It didn't work out well for them. So, in, in our presentation, I think it was a week ago or perhaps two weeks ago, I couldn't really remember whether the Franks were Christian or not before the fall of Rome. Researching for this evening's program, 
I was looking at book five of the history of the wars of Justinian. And in chapter five of that book, Procopius described a letter, which was written by Justinian, appealing for Frankish support in the war against the Goths, based on the commonality of their Orthodox Christian faith. So by the time of Justinian, which is 530 AD, at least some of the tribes of the Franks were Catholic. And I say that with a small C, not with a large Roman Catholic C, right? They were small C Catholic Christians already by the time of Justinian. And the Franks were not under control of the Roman Empire. So they were not forced into Christianity by Rome. And they were already Christians. The Franks were free Germanic tribes. They weren't under anybody's rule or control, except their own kings, their own noblemen. So how the Franks were converted is beyond knowledge of history, as far as I'm concerned. We don't know. But at least many of the Frankish tribes were already small c Catholic Christians, as opposed to the Goths, who were Aryan Christians. And as we had stated last week, or explained last week, the difference was only mostly in how they viewed Christ and the nature of Christ was the primary difference between Catholic Christians and Aryan Christians. But it was a very divisive difference. So there was a lot of antipathy between the Aryan Christian Goths and the Catholic Christian Romans and Greeks, the Orthodox, perhaps we should call it, Christian Romans and Greeks of the time. So the Franks were were Orthodox Christians or Catholic Christians, if you will. And that on that basis, Justinian, the emperor of the Byzantines, was looking for allegiance from these Franks in his war against the Goths, who were Aryan Christians. So that shows you the power that the Franks had at the time, the power that the Goths had at the time, that Justinian would need allies in his war against them, how powerful these tribes were, and it shows the divisions among the Germanic tribes in their acceptance of Christianity. But more important, it shows that they had at least a great number because they weren't all Christians. A lot of them were still pagans, but they had at least a great number of them accepted Christianity peacefully because nobody conquered the Franks to make them Christians and nobody conquered the Goths to make them Christians the Goths were demonstrably Christian even before the Romans. Yeah, and that shows you that the purpose of the the Pope it wasn't to convert, uh, you know, the Europe, the the Adamic world to Christianity. Rather, it was to seize control and power of pre-existing uh, Christianity. Right, that all the other bishops to bring them under. So the way it spun that. Um, you know the Jews made up Christianity and then used the Pope to convert the world. It was it wasn't like that. It was Christianity was already there, but the people there wanted to gain control over the pre-existing Christian nations, right? So so it is different than it's often portrayed by uh, pagans, etc. Right? 
Absolutely. The, the view of the spread of Christianity that we have in, in ancient Europe that we have today is mostly from Roman Catholic propaganda, not even from Jewish propaganda. But it suits the Jews. That This view suits the Jews, so they don't usually debate it. They don't really want you to know that Christianity is an entirely white religion, that the Jews of ancient times were always 100% hostile to it, that Christians of the early centuries of Christianity were always hostile to Jews, that Christians understood that Judaism was a perversion of the Christian religion rather than the other way around, the Jews had built their own paradigm justifying themselves, and from the early centuries of Christianity, they have foisted that paradigm onto the ignorant. The truth is that there were Christians all over Europe long before the Romans decided to accept Christianity. There were Christian kingdoms in Britain from as early as the middle second century AD, and there were Christians in Britain from perhaps as early as 40 AD, or maybe even a couple of years earlier than that. And we've discussed this in other uh, in other contexts at Christagenia. We've discussed this at length. Sven Longshanks and I had done several podcasts on early Christianity in Britain perhaps six or seven years ago. So I can't possibly repeat it all now. Bede. Bede was a Anglo-Saxon churchman in Britain in the 7th century, or I'm sorry, the 8th century AD, in the 700s. And Bede was a Roman Catholic apologist. He... he he loved the papacy. He loved the Pope. He thought the Roman Catholic Church should be the one true, true church. He had all of the programming of Roman Catholicism. However, in spite of that, in his ecclesiastical history of Britain, or England, if you will, because he was an, he was an Anglo-Saxon, he wasn't a Breton. He, he had explained first that the, when the Ang Angles and Saxons had come to Britain, had come to England, that they did not drive out all of the British, all of the original Bretons, or older Bretons, I should say. Instead, they dwelt in villages as their neighbors. They dwelt among them as their neighbors. They were simply more powerful than the Bretons, and they were able to take portions of their land. But they dwelt alongside them as neighbors, and Bede explains that. So the, the propaganda that the Angles and Saxons had driven out all of the Bretons into Wales and, and Scotland, that's not true, according to Bede. And he was basically an eyewitness of, of the... 8th century, which is only about 250 years after the Anglo-Saxon invasions of England. So he witnessed these things. He witnessed early England. He had made descriptions of the differences between what I'll call the Celtic Christian priesthood 
or the Celtic Christians, because they, they didn't really have this sort of organized pre priesthood that Rome established, but they did have their, their missionaries and, and their evangelists. He described the differences between them and the Roman Catholics and the Roman Catholic priests. He, he described some of the differences, not all of them. But he also had described how, before his own time, many of these Christians in Britain were going to the continent. They were going to Germany, for the most part, or, or what we know today as Belgium or, or the Netherlands. And they were evangelizing the faith even as soon or even before England itself had become Roman Catholic. And England itself became Roman Catholic because the Roman Catholic Church was among the Angles and the Saxons in England trying to persuade the noblemen of the Anglo-Saxons over to Roman Christianity basically about the same time that the ancient Celtic church in Britain and Ireland was trying to persuade those same noblemen over to Celtic Christianity. And Rome won that. They won that battle. So you had competing churches, and the Celtic church was in England for centuries before the Roman Catholic church. But the Roman Catholic Church, in my opinion, had much better propaganda, and they were able to claim, because of their their links to Eastern Christianity and, and Greek Christianity, they were able to claim to be the authorities on that basis, in my opinion. Yeah, I think their favorite trick up their sleeve was that um, Christ said, I know you've done an entire paper on it that uh, to Peter, I give you the keys of uh, heaven, right? Right. And then they said, well, Peter made the Roman Catholic Church. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is the kingdom to heaven. And, uh, you know, the Celtic Christians weren't prepared to counter that with an argument. And it got them and they managed to win over the Anglo-Saxons with arguments like that, right? Right. That was one of the points. arguments. That was one of the points of Roman propaganda. And it's only propaganda. It's not true. That was one of the points of Roman propaganda upon which the Roman Catholic Church has always claimed its authority. But it's simply a lie. Peter did not found the Christian church at Rome. Peter didn't do it, and Paul didn't do it. When Paul wrote his epistles to the Romans, there's no mention of Peter. When Peter wrote his epistle to the people of of Paul's churches, if you really carefully read the first epistle of Peter, when he wrote that epistle, he was writing to churches which Paul had founded. And he was in Babylon. In the closing remarks, he said that he was in Babylon. Why? Because Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, and there were still many people of the Babylonian captivity of Judah in Babylon. So that's where Peter went, because he was the apostle to the circumcision. Where Paul was the apostle to the uncircumcised, he was he wrote to these Christians at Rome, and they were Christians at Rome, for many years before Paul ever went to Rome. 
And that's very evident in, in Romans chapters 15 and 16, that Paul had not yet been to Rome, but yet there were many Christian churches in many persons' private homes. So those churches existed before either Peter or Paul ever went to Rome. They did not. Neither of those men founded those churches. We don't know who founded those churches. But it was apostles before Peter and Paul. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth. He departed Athens. He went to Corinth. He had never yet been to Rome. Paul never went to Rome until he was in chains as it's described in Acts chapter 27, which was about 60, maybe 59 or 60 AD. I believe it was 60 AD when Paul finally went to Rome. And this right here in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth, and it's only 51 AD or thereabouts, 50, 51, 52, right in there when Paul was in Corinth. And that can be established from the chronology of the book of Acts. And he found a certain Judean named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Judeans to depart from Rome. Now, that happened a few years before 51. And, and in fact, I might be wrong about this. It might be 41. I, I don't. My memory is failing me. But that's fine. It may have been 41, the Edict of Claudius. I'm going to look it up real quick because my I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm only 60. I feel like I'm getting old. <laughs> the Edict of Claudius was 49. That sounds better. 49 AD. And I'm, I'm sure that Paul reached Corinth in 50 maybe 51 AD, and that could be dated from, from Roman records, and, and because he was, um, he was brought before Gallo, I believe his name is, or Gallio, Gallio, later on in Acts chapter 18, Paul was brought before Gallio, who, who was the governor of, the Roman governor of Corinth at the time, the procurator or whatever position he had, proconsul. So Gallio, we know from letters which have survived history, that Gallio was in Corinth, managing Corinth or governing Corinth for the Romans in 50, and, 50 to 52 AD. So the Edict of Claudius was issued in 49 AD, and that's also known from history. And he did command all the Judeans, I won't call them Jews at this time because they weren't all Jews as we know Jews, he commanded all the Judeans to depart from Rome. And that's what this refers to in Acts chapter 18. So this can be dated from that and from the time of Gallio, right? So if there were Judeans in Rome and they were already Christians, as Priscilla and Aquila were already Christians, and Paul wrote those churches, he wrote them this, this epistle to the Romans, which we have, in Acts, probably in Acts chapter 20, I believe, from Troy, but 
nevertheless, it was written before Paul ever got to Rome because in it, he expresses hope to visit Rome in Romans chapter 15. And then he salutes all these churches and all these Christians in Rome in Romans chapter 16. They all existed before Peter or Paul ever got to Rome. So the Roman Catholic propaganda that Peter and Paul founded the Church of Rome is clearly a lie. It's not true. Perhaps Priscilla and Aquila should be credited with founding the Church at Rome. But that wouldn't be true either. Because some somebody from Judea, in a history which is not recorded, had gone to Rome and Roman Judeans began to become Christian before Peter or Paul ever got there. That's very clear right in these records in the New Testament. Acts chapter 18 and Romans chapters 15 and 16. But the Catholic Church, they, they were able to just fabricate these tales and that they remained unchallenged. Nobody powerful enough could challenge them. But most of these tales probably were not fabricated until after Justinian, as we discussed here in our last presentation, after Justinian made that decree that the Bishop of Rome was the head of all the bishops in the empire. And that decree was written into law in Justinian's novels, and it carried the force of law for 1,260 years from that time until the time of Napoleon, which was a result itself of the Reformation, where Protestant churchmen had begun to question that, had begun to question Rome's claims to authority. And they questioned it rightfully. That's also a digression. We should get on to Daniel chapter 7, if you will. Unless you have something to add. No, that's fine. We can uh, proceed. Well, well real quick, and in, indeed, getting back to the reason why we took this digression, Bede wrote of two Anglo-Saxon missionaries. And he called them Black Hewald and White Hewald, both of their names evidently being Hewald. And they were called, as Bede explains, they were called Black Hewald and White Hewald because of the color of their hair. So either one of them, one of them must have had dark hair, black hair. The other one must have had either platinum blonde or gray hair because we don't know how old these men were. So, <sighs> Black Hewald wasn't black because he was a Negro, right? He was black simply because he had black hair. And we see a lot of examples of that in our history. So, they went to old, they went to the old Saxons. They were banished a long time in Ireland. They were banished out of England for some reason. Bede doesn't give the exact reason. So they spent a long time in Ireland, where the Anglo-Saxons did not rule. So they must have been amongst the, the Celtic church in Ireland. So they were banished to Ireland, and they went to the province of the Old Saxons. Now, if you carefully read Bede, 
you'll find that Old Saxons was the term he used to describe the Saxons of Germany as opposed to the Saxons in England. So these men went to Germany, and, and that description holds up all throughout Bede's writings. So when he says Old Saxons, he means the Saxons who stayed behind in Germany on the continent, right? So they went to the Old Saxons, and a certain nobleman had summoned them and wanted to speak with them, ostensibly about Christianity. So they were traveling to this nobleman's home, and Bede describes that the Germans were ruled over by aldermen, or eldermen, that they were ruled over by their elders, the Saxons. They didn't have their own king at this time, as Bede attests here. This is um, Book 5, Chapter 10 of his Ecclesiastical History. So these two missionaries had stopped in a village, and the, the reeve of the village, the reeve is the word for the, for the magistrate or the leader of the village. They stopped by, and they were hosted at his home for several days on their journey. And the people of the village caught wind that these two men were Christian missionaries, and they killed them. Because, as Bede explains, they didn't want to accept this new religion of Christianity. So when this alderman, this nobleman that they were going to, had found out that these villagers killed them, he actually killed the people in the village that killed the men, and he burnt the village with fire, as Bede explains. So, so that's an example of some of the struggle by which the pagan Saxons had accepted Christianity, but it's also an, an attestation that their noblemen were looking at Christianity willingly and were willing to punish those who impeded that. It's also an example that there were missionaries in, in Germany at an early time. And they were both Celtic church missionaries and Catholic church missionaries in Germany among the Germanic tribes. So we don't know who converted the Franks. We don't know if the Franks were Aryan Christians or not before they were Catholic Christians. But we see that in the time of Clovis, they became Catholic Christians because their king became a Catholic Christian. But the Clovis's wife was already a Christian. Clotilda, I think her name was. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, if, yeah, it shows that Christianity was spreading just fine without the Roman Catholic uh, tyranny of, of the popes, right? That the Germanic tribes were gradually becoming Christian, even though uh, Roman Catholicism claims, uh, you know, credit for that. Right. Christianity was spreading, and there were tribes that did accept it willingly. Who, who, did, who forced the Goths into Christianity? There was nobody to force the Goths into Christianity. The Persians or, or the Parthians were not yet Christians when the Goths became Christians. It, it's ridiculous to think that Rome conquered all these Germanic pagan tribes and forced them to be Christians when it's absolutely clear in history that many of those Germanic pagan tribes became Christians way before Rome, long before Rome accepted Christianity. 
And they certainly didn't get Christianity from Jews. In Daniel chapter 7, we read in Daniel's explanation of a vision which he had of four beasts, that these great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So here we see parallels with Daniel chapter 2 which are sufficient to conclude that these are two different visions of the same future history from future from Daniel's time, but long past our own time. Then, after describing the fourth of those beasts, which was the Roman Empire, Daniel says a little further on, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other that came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, the prophet had described an eleventh horn, which represents a king that would arise after the demise of the fourth beast. And the things which he prophesied that the horn would do compels us to identify it as being representative of Justinian. And then the office of the papacy, which Justinian had created when he wrote his own laws. In other words, the horn isn't just one person. It represents Justinian and these establishments which Justinian created. So where the prophecy continues, we read from Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. That describes the Roman Empire. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another, the eleventh, the little horn, shall arise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first. He was actually looking to enforce and organize Christianity in the empire, where the first kings of his line were pagans. He shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And as we explained last week, those three kings which he subdued were the Gothic kings, Totila and Vitiges, the Vandal, the king of the Vandals, who, who was Gelimer, who, who had come to rule Germanic North Africa, and then the Gothic kings of Iberia or Spain. I believe the 
Gothic King of Seville, and and his name actually escapes me at the moment. I apologize. But we explained his story last week as well in our last presentation. So, it goes on to say that he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume it unto the end. So, so we have to think about these things which this little horn would do from a biblical perspective in reference to Justinian, a perspective which is not necessarily Justinian's perspective, right? I, I mean, Justinian may have thought that he was doing doing well. And, and I'm sorry, Agila I, the king of the Visigoths of Spain, Agila I was his name. I can't possibly remember all of these names, right? <laughs> and and Athana Guild had tried to overthrow him. So that's obscure history, but it's there in the pages of Procopius. So we have to think about these things which which are said of this 11th, this little horn. And Justinian just happens to be the 11th emperor of the independent from the West, Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. So to me, that's a sign that this is speaking about him. And whether or not the kingdom had broken into, the, the Roman Empire had broken into 10 specific political portions or not, after it fell, after the fall of Rome, is arguable, but it doesn't really matter. The ten horns, or, or the ten toes, to me, equate with the senatorial provinces of Rome, which were ten in number. And that just indicates to us the identity, it's just one further indication to us of the identity of this fourth kingdom, that it's clearly speaking about Rome. And all of these things can be identified in Roman history. Therefore, we must understand this to be speaking about the Roman Empire, this fourth kingdom, and it's the fourth kingdom starting with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and we see four world empires. This identification is unmistakable. So if the Israelites are black, show me this, all of these precise parallels in the history of the blacks of Africa or, or the history of the Orientals of China. If, if Chinese should be Christian, where are they in this picture where these empires had ruled over wheresoever the children of men dwell? They have no part in this. They have no role in this. South Americans, they have no role in this. They have no history in this. They can't claim any part or portion of this. I mean, the people might speak Spanish today or Portuguese, but they aren't Spanish or Portuguese. It's ridiculous to apply any of these prophecies to any other people but the white European people. And it's clearly Eurocentric. In, in its 
descriptions. It, it should be taken for granted that this is speaking of white people, and we should be willing to look at history and explain how these white Europeans came from ancient Israel. Because they did. That's why they're the saints. That's why they are the saints of the Most High. So Justinian may not have wanted to explicitly wear down the saints of the Most High, but the institutions which he founded certainly did make war against the saints and wear down the saints of the Most High. The Roman Catholic Church did become a great burden on the Christian people of Europe and wear them down and oppress them and rule over them. That was the reason for the violence of the Reformation because people came to finally object to that. They came to these churchmen in Europe, Martin Luther included, came to see the evil of the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church and resisted it and rose up against it. And that's why we had the Thirty Years' War. And, and that institution, which Justinian founded, certainly made war against the saints in that Thirty Years' War when a third of the German population was destroyed simply for not kissing the ring of the Pope simply for objecting to the oppression of the papacy and seeking to follow the word of God in scripture. That's why they were destroyed. When the popes had tried to prevent them from reading the scripture. So this certainly describes Justinian because it describes the institutions which Justinian created in his laws. And he changed laws. So for over a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had ruled over Europe with Justinian's law. And Justinian's law was the law adopted by most of the European governments. During that time when Roman Catholicism prevailed in Europe. And it wasn't Christianity. Changed times. The, of course, the Roman emperors instituted their own calendars. So perhaps Justinian, ignoring the calendar in scripture and accepting the Roman calendar as being Christian and ruling over a Christian empire, when I say Christian, I mean the people were Christians, ruling over a Christian empire and enforcing this Roman calendar had changed times as well as having changed laws. And then later on came Pope Gregory and he changed the calendar again to the, the modern calendar, which is called the Gregorian calendar. So we're still operating under a Roman calendar. So he changed laws and he changed times. It's uh, fascinating how a lot of these people, like like Justinian and Napoleon, didn't realize what a knock-on effect what they're doing would have, right? And even if they might have thought that it was good or had good intentions, how uh, they didn't see what would eventually happen, right? That they did a lot of damage. Unintended consequences. That That's the mechanizations of men. That's what they cause, is unintended consequences. And right, I don't believe that Justinian, I believe Justinian did think that he was doing well to do what he had done. 
because he wanted Christianity to conform to a particular standard and believed that the Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, would uphold that standard. And instead, power-hungry popes used Justinian's laws to rule over all of the kings of Europe after the Roman Catholic Church converted those kingdoms to Catholic Christianity. And that situation lasted for a time, times, and a dividing of a time. And that's interpreted as 1260 years. And that's fair because it's equated in prophecy to 42 months, where, where it's stated one way in Daniel and another way in the Revelation. And 42 months of 30 days is 1260, a day being a year in prophecy. We could see very clearly in the history of, of the Roman Catholic Church, we could see this time, period of time. So I had written, and, and we've been digressing ever since I read those verses in Daniel chapter 7. I had written in preparation for this program that therefore this little horn must represent a person or entity which arises soon after the fall of the fourth beast, which was the Roman Empire. And the things which it is prophesied to do can only be identified with Justinian and the establishment of the popes of Rome over the empire, as those popes would also come to control all of its former lands while the people of God, the Germanic tribes, were the vehicle by which the popes maintained that control in the name of the Holy Roman Empire for three and a half times or 1260 years, throughout which Daniel had said that it would have dominion. The temporal power of the popes, derived from Justinian's laws, did indeed last from about 500, 538 AD to about 1789 AD, when the French Revolution began. In 1796, Napoleon arrested the Pope known as Pius VI, and he died in prison in France in 1799. So Napoleon kept the Pope locked up in jail until he died for three years. The thousand-year duration of the Holy Roman Empire ended by 1806 AD. So the saints of the Most High certainly were given into the hands of this little horn for the time which Daniel had specified. That history is so clear. That prophecy is so clearly prophetic and, and so clearly displays the foreknowledge and providence of God. It's incredible to me. Yeah, and the only reason the Pope is still around is because the Jews clearly think that they can use him to influence people, uh, particularly the nations which are still largely Catholic, right, where um, the Pope comes out and said, it's your God-given right to go get the COVID jab, for example. And that, that's the only reason the Pope's there, right, just to corrupt us. Absolutely. He's just punishment. He, he's a part of our punishment. If we want to worship men, then we're going to go get the jab. We're going to go get vaccinated because the Pope told us to go get vaccinated. How is that not 
worship of the beast. When when you examine vaccinations, and, and they're clearly what the scripture calls sorcery or pharmakia, how is that not worshiping the beast? If you would clearly deny the word of God in scripture and do those things because some pope told you to do them. And, and things like that have been happening within Roman Catholicism in far more subtle ways for over 1,500 years. Explaining these things throughout these last two presentations now, we've been following our review of a paper titled The Little Horn of Daniel Chapter 7 by Clifton Emmeheiser. Clifton had evidently written that paper in October of 2010, and we presented it here at Christagenia with our own criticisms and additions in November of 2020. So now we shall continue where we had left off with that last presentation. With some of my additions to Clifton's remarks, I had just presented and explained the laws which Justinian made establishing the Bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches in the empire. That was in the end of our last presentation last week. And how that concept was evidently new in the 4th century, or, or I should say in the 5th century, as it was certainly not Christian. Then my remarks took a turn, and I wrote that putting Daniel side by side with the Revelation and with Roman and medieval history, the truths of these interpretations are fully ascertained, even if there are some minor details of which various interpretations may still be debated. Yet very few denominational Christians have even realized the need for such an undertaking never mind actually venturing to make such an endeavor. They would prefer to interpret prophecy according to their peculiar sectarian doctrines rather than according to history. If prophecy is history written in advance, if the prophets of, of God, if the prophets of Yahweh were telling you what things were going to happen, then you're failing if you don't go back and study history to see if those things happened as the prophet said they would happen. In Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7, if you go back into history, nowhere else in scripture is it more clear that these things happened exactly like Daniel said they would happen. I don't care if you want to think that Daniel wrote like the Jews think, in the 3rd or the 2nd centuries B.C., which is a lie because he actually wrote in the 6th century B.C. I don't care how late you want to try to push the writing of Daniel into history. Daniel clearly prophesied things that began in the 5th century A.D. and didn't end until 1260 years later in the 18th century A.D., in the 19th century A.D., so the providence of God displayed in Daniel is incredible. And even though there are things just as incredible in the other prophets, for which reason we should believe the God of that Bible 
We should believe his word for that reason. Nobody else could do that and make it so clear. Nothing is more clearly fulfilled, precisely fulfilled, as the way that Daniel had explained it. It, it's to me, it's more precise than practically every other prophecy right here in Daniel 7. When I first began to study Christian identity in 1997, 1997, it was more clear to me in Daniel that I should believe the God of the Bible than anywhere else I had read. That's how profound these prophecies are. Once their true fulfillment is explained, <laughs> is explained because men like William Fowler had put that together long before I did. I was absolutely convinced once I studied it for myself. And ever since that time, I've been able to correct some of Fowler's mistakes. But men put this together over 100 years ago. After they had learned the identity message, men that were much more learned than I was in history in 1997. So this has been known for a long time, these fulfillments. Churches still don't get it. They still don't get the implications of this and why they should obey and conform themselves to the implications of this. So I said that the Bishop of Rome being the head of all the churches in the empire was a new concept in the 4th century. And I wrote that because as Eusebius describes some of the events of that century, it's evident that in the 4th century, perhaps even a little earlier, the Roman bishop did attempt to exert authority over churches in other, in other places outside of Rome. But until the 4th century, that concept was rejected by the bishops of those other churches who rightfully saw themselves as equals to the bishop of Rome. So Justinian had to make it a law in the 6th century and that's when it took effect. But the Bishop of Rome was never to head over any other church until Justinian made that law. I don't know if you have anything to say. Um, not on this point. Sorry, Bill. Okay. No, that's fine. I just want to give you the opportunity to talk in case you need to. <laughs> now Clifton discusses... I sort of got ahead of myself. Now Clifton discusses what they have done here in this chapter of Daniel is what I had written. And it's really what the what these horns had done in this chapter of Daniel, right? Clifton says the biblical path I'm sorry, it's really what the denominational churches have done in this chap this chapter of Daniel. I, I lost I lost scope of the subject in my digression, so excuse me. Clifton says, The biblical passage that nearly everyone takes out of context is Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, which we will read at this time. And yes, I will suffer our having to read it again 
And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of a time. So now Clifton responds to this passage and their interpretation of it. This is one of the key passages futurists use to prove a future so-called Antichrist and a three-and-one-half-year period of tribulation, along with the so-called Mark of the Beast. And that's what the denominational churches do. They take all of these images from Daniel and Revelation, and they create their own narrative of these images, and they put it far off into the future, as if none of this has ever happened in history. So Clifton says, if our people understood history, they wouldn't be falling for such nonsense. All that futurist bunk was dreamed up by a Spanish Jesuit by the name of Ribera about 1580 AD, and no one before that time ever heard of such a doctrine. And that's absolutely true. Some of the early reformers, going back over 100 years before this, to the 15th century AD, into the 1400s, there were Dutch and German reformers, people who wanted to reform the church, right, to, to correct all of its problems and to bring it more in line with Scripture. These reformers understood from the Revelation and from Daniel 7 that the church represented the beast, that the church, that the Pope was the dragon who, who, was, who, who looked like a lamb, but he was a dragon. They understood these things and used these concepts in their propaganda against the Pope. So the, these, the meanings of these prophecies had begun to be revealed in the 15th century through these reformers. And they were true. They were correct. They may not have been correct in all the details of their interpretations, but they were generally correct. That the papacy is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. And we will get to that in our next presentation. So for now, Clifton says, the important thing to notice with this passage is that we are looking for a king of a kingdom who subdued three other kings of our people, meaning the saints of the Most High, the Germanic tribes of the Assyrian captivity, during his reign. You will also notice we are looking for a king who, during his reign, had a very strong impact upon writing and managing laws. You will notice Justinian fits both of these qualifications. As we go along, the picture of the fulfillment of this passage will start to come into focus. And at this point, I made the following comment. I said, not only did Justinian subdue three kingdoms, which emerged in the toes of the old Roman Empire, but he also fulfills the role of being the 11th king of his own kingdom, the Western and Eastern 
or Byzantine portions of the old Roman Empire became permanently divided upon the death of Theodosius I in 395 AD. After him was his son Arcadius, king over the eastern portion alone, and he was succeeded by Theodosius II, that's two kings, independent kings, from one of those toes of the old Roman Empire. Polcaria, he's number three, Marcion, Leo I, Leo II, Zeno, that's seven, Basilicus, Anastasius I Dicorus, that's nine, that's eight, nine, Justin is ten, and then Justinian. So he's the eleventh king of the Byzantine, of the independent, independent from the West, right? Independent from Rome, of the independent Byzantine Empire. So once we add that to the fact that he was also a notable codifier of laws, laws which would govern Europe into modern times, the association is absolutely certain. So continuing with Clifton, he says, I will now quote from the World Book Encyclopedia, volume 11, page 168, to get further insight on this subject. Justinian, Justinian I, who lived from 482 A.D. to 565 A.D., was the Byzantine or East Roman emperor from 527 A.D. until his death. He collected Roman laws under one code, the Corpus Juris Civilis, which is body of civil law. This code, also known as the Justinian Code, is the basis of the legal systems in many nations today. Justinian was called the Great. He recaptured many parts of what had been the Western Roman Empire from barbarians, the Vandals, the Goths. He built fortresses, harbors, monasteries, and the famous church of St. Sophia in what is now Istanbul, Turkey which has recently, I think, been converted into a mosque once again. Justinian was born in a part of Macedonia that is now in Yugoslavia. His uncle, Emperor Justin I, made him co-ruler in 527. Justin died a few months later, and Justinian became sole emperor. During Justinian's reign, his wife, Theodora, tried to influence his politics as a digression, Procopius wrote a book called The Secret History, which is at least attributed to Procopius. And in The Secret History, Theodora is made out to be a real dirty whore. But that's all I'll say here. Justinian was an Orthodox Christian and tried to unify his empire under one Christian faith. He persecuted Christian heretics, meaning those who opposed church teachings. Jews and pagans or non-Christians. In 529, he closed the schools of philosophy in Athens, Greece, because he felt they taught paganism. Now I offered a short digression in that paper because it shows that Justinian was related to the Trojans, and we had discussed this several presentations ago in the series when we were speaking about the blessings of Judah, right? And how Judah was to hold the scepter. According to the Greek historian Procopius, who was also a member of Justinian's court, 
Josinian had come from the tribe of the Dardanians in Macedonia, which also places him among the descendants of that tribe, which founded ancient Troy, who were called Dardanians. Returning to Clifton Emmeheiser, what follows repeats some things which we had explained last in our last presentation last week, but not without error, because Clifton sources had some error. They made some mistakes. In the early 530s, Justinian began a series of wars against the Vandals, Ostrogoths, and Visigoths, who had conquered most of the Western Roman Empire in the 400s. By the mid-550s, his armies had taken North Africa, Italy, and parts of Spain, and to that I must add Dalmatia as well, which is above Macedonia. Justinian Code Justinian I, ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire from 527 to 565, commanded ten of the wisest men in his realm to draw up a collection of the Roman laws. This collection is known as the Corpus Juris Civilis, which means body of civil law. Also called the Justinian Code, Clifton's repeating himself because he wants to make his point very clearly. This body of law is recognized as one of the greatest Roman contributions to civilization. It was a compilation of early Roman laws and legal principles, illustrated by cases, and that's the beginning of case law in, in America, and combined with an explanation of new laws, the novel constitutions, and future legislation. The code clarified the laws of those times and has since been a basis for law codes of many countries. It remained a basis for most for law in most European countries until the time of Napoleon. And it's still in use in many countries today in one form or another. Clifton says from his citation, the scholars who compiled the Justinian Code divided it, divided it into four parts. The Institute served as a textbook in law for students and lawyers. The Digest was a casebook covering many trials and decisions. The Codex was a collection of statutes and principles. The novels contained proposed new laws, and it's the novels which instituted the Roman papacy the office of the Pope. After Clifton responds to the Encyclopedia article, a little further on he says, Justinian was corrupting the church and the state with his new law code, so we will not completely understand this passage unless we look further. Then, and I'm going to skip a lot of Clifton's remarks here, then even further on he continued, and this is what follows, and, and this and what follows is a part of a citation he made from Howard Rand. Rand had followed and also added to the interpretation of William Fowler, whom Clifton had cited earlier in this paper. Fowler's interpretation of Daniel chapters 2 and 7 was mostly very good, but Rand also repeated some of Fowler's mistakes. I for my part, I could not recommend Rand's writings today, as he also followed many of the errors of British Israel, and especially because he maintained the belief 
that the Jews are Judah, which is absolutely ludicrous. It's ridiculous to think that Jews are Judah. And for that reason, many years ago when I read Rand's study in Revelation for myself, I never got past the first couple of chapters. I gave up on it. It was terrible. However, the following observation is also good where Rand wrote, because he did a lot of good work. He just had these major errors that were major stumbling blocks for his readers. Rand wrote, In the eyes and the mouth that appear in this little horn, we have a new power associated with the rule of the little horn. In fact, this power became the eyes and the mouth of the civil and economic activities of the government represented in the little horn. Justinian, as head of the civil government, and the Pope, as the head of the church, united their interest, and church and state became one. That's exactly what happened under the popes of Rome. Finally, the Pope became the director of both church and state, and ruled as a great politico-ecclesiastical potentate. One needs but read the utterances of past popes to recognize the fulfillment of speaking great words against the Most High, as prophesied by Daniel. And that's very true. People today don't even have a concept of the power and control that the Roman Catholic Church had. Not necessarily the Pope directly, but the Roman Catholic Church as an organization and every local bishop, the power and control that they had over the people of Europe for 1260 years. And the monasteries and the amount of land in Europe that had been owned outright by the monasteries and by the local bishops. And they were leeching all the wealth from uh, all the communities, right? The villages around them as well. Yes. Now, in yes, they absolutely were. Now, in the 19th century, that was all dismantled. And we might think it was good to dismantle it, but all the power, wealth, and land ended up in the wrong hands. <laughs> A lot of it ended up in the hands of Jewish speculators. And if all of this property is suddenly dismantled, now some of it was given over to the noble classes, but a lot of it ultimately ended up in the hands of speculators. And that was one of the aspects of the of modern Germany that Adolf Hitler had had been against and had been contrary to, that all of this land was in the hands of Jewish speculators rather than being put to the good use of the German people. But it's inevitable once we went from the feudal system to the capitalist system that that was going to happen because when suddenly there's a lot of property available, who has the cash? The German peasants didn't have the cash. They didn't have the money to purchase this property or to acquire property. They were at the mercy of the noble class, which failed to protect them from the Jew. The noble class themselves becoming beholden to the Jews in the capitalist period. We've gone from one evil to another to another. We've never had it right, and we've never actually instituted Christianity 
even though we've claimed to be Christians for 2,000 years. Christianity's never really been practiced. Yeah, and hopefully it will once Babylon collapses, right? Absolutely. But, um, Bill, I just wanted to quickly ask, do you know much about the kingdom of Dardania? Because it's not really mentioned that much in the classics, right? But some of the Dardanians or Trojans must have moved up there after the fall of Troy, right? Is that what you believe happened? Oh, absolutely. And I believe it became Illyria. Now, why it was called Illyria, I really don't know. That There is conjecture among British Israel people that it was why it was called Illyria, because El is God and it's they're the people of God. I don't believe that. I really don't. Um, I would have to see it in, in a real language in order to accept it. But I do believe that the kingdom of Dardania became Illyria, but that also many Dardanians were in Macedonia and it was all folded into Macedonia in the time of Alexander's empire, which is relatively early. The ancient Greeks, the Greek classics, Herodotus, Thucydides, they don't really go into detail about the development of Macedonia, and that's because in the 5th century, Macedonia was not a large factor, a dominant factor in Greek politics. Greek politics was dominated by the Athenians and the Spartans, and the wars between them. So, no, we really don't have a lot of information about the development of Macedonia and the kingdom of Dardania. But it certainly existed. And those Dardanians, who were related to the Dardans of Troy, certainly existed there and still existed in the time of Justinian, as Procopius could still identify Justinian as a Dardanian. I don't think they identify themselves as Dardanians today, but that's because the inhabitants of that region are no longer Greek. Now they are Slavs, for the most part that the invasions, the, the population shifts and the invasions of, of Indo-Europeans, right? Of Scythians and Sarmatians, the push by the Scythians and Sarmatians, who were all originally white Adamic people, from Central Asia to Eastern Europe to Western Europe, really did change the nature of a lot of the populations who had settled in those areas in, in times before that, over the centuries preceding that. The, the, the early push of, of course, the Cimmerians and the Galatahi and, and the Saka, which were all the same people, into Europe, which began in the 6th century BC. That set off this, this wave of immigration into Europe from the same people who had expanded and, and, and grown into great numbers in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So, so these population shifts changed a lot of the population. The Macedonians of today, the Macedonians today, the people of the country that the United Nations recognize and world governments recognize as Macedonia today, they're not Greek at all. They're Slavs. And there are a lot of Greeks who are offended by the fact that these Slavs are inhabiting this land and calling themselves Macedonians. 
that they wouldn't be offended if they called themselves anything but Macedonians, but they're offended that these people are Slavs calling themselves Macedonians, and that actually is the result of Stalin-era Russian propaganda, Soviet propaganda, that propagandized these Slavs living in ancient Macedonia to make the Slavic people believe that they are the descendants of the ancient Macedonians. It, it's like government propaganda in, in many places is very clear that government propaganda has written history on many occasions. And, and this is one of them that's right in, our, right in front of our faces today. So the modern Macedonians are Slavs, they're not Greeks. But the Rome the, the the Soviets convinced them that they were Greeks so that they could steal that heritage of the ancient Macedonians. It's incredible. But it's true, and it's true right now. And you could probably find it online. I don't know if that answers your question. It's another digression. Yeah, absolutely. After making a few comments, Clifton is going to cite another portion of Howard Rand on this same subject. Doing this, he was in turn citing something that he had written even earlier, even before I knew him, in his Watchman's Teaching Letter number 12 of April 1999. I was reading him at the time, but I didn't know him personally yet. So first he says, what we are talking about here is an ecclesiastical political power with the combination of Justinian and the Pope. That is why this new ecclesiastical political beast is diverse from all the beasts that were before it, citing Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And to this I must add a qualifying statement. While Rome also controlled the religion of its citizens, that was not the Christian religion. The popes of Rome and the development of Roman Catholicism actually continued most aspects and beliefs of Roman paganism, but in the name of, Christiani of Christianity. The pagan rites became Christian sacraments. The pagan priests became Catholic priests. The Roman gods became Christian saints. The Roman temples became Christian churches, and many of the Roman civil offices became ecclesiastical offices. Before the Roman priests became, the pagan Roman priests became Catholic priests, Christians didn't have priests anywhere. Christianity doesn't need priests because Christ is our priest as Paul explains in, he, in his epistle to the Hebrews. But the Catholic pagans did need priests. So that's why we have Roman Catholic priests and Eastern Orthodox priests. Continuing with Clifton once again, I will now quote from Howard B. Rand's book, Study in Revelation, page 44. Upon the ruins of the ancient Roman Empire, there arose gradually a new and different type of empire, which became all the more powerful because it claimed control over the souls of men as well as their bodies and extended its dominion beyond this life into the grave. Now, not even pagan Rome, I don't think, ever did that. History has amply verified these facts and that the popes claimed the right to temporal power taking the place of the Caesars 
while the eternal city under pagan Rome became the eternal city under papal control. How apt is the description of her supporter, as named by John, Hell. This is Hades, or the abode of the dead. For through the doctrine of purgatory, the church was able to hold supremacy and exercise tremendous power over her followers, not only in this life, but beyond, through the fear of future suffering in purgatory. And of course, purgatory is also a false doctrine, something that is not found in our Bibles. To this I had responded and said, while we may not totally agree with some of Rand's allegories, his remarks were certainly appropriate. While ancient emperors, including the emperors of the Greeks and Romans, often sought to homogenize the religions of their subjects for the sake of peace and government compliance within their respective states, now, rather than appealing to some idol in a temple, the Pope could claim the authority of the God of Heaven, the one true God of our Bibles, while ruling as a tyrant over God's people. The little horn would rule over and wear down the saints of the Most High. There is no other history which fulfills these prophecies found in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, and once history is understood, the fulfillment of the prophecies of these prophecies in the Germanic tribes of Europe is clearly evident. The Israelites were white, and if we are white Europeans, then we are the Israelites. It's that simple. Yeah, it happened nowhere else but Europe. Um, oh, Bill, I just wanted to mention just briefly uh, where the, the Jesuits were try, uh, started to create this um, counter-propaganda, right? The, um, the priests of, uh, you know, in Europe who were Catholic originally, but were starting to wake up and break away. And, and you know, they were reading the Bible, such as Martin Luther. They realized uh, what the Catholic Pope was doing, that they were oppressing the people. They were, um, you know, if you wanted your relative to get to heaven, you'd have to pay one of the Catholic priests and then they would do a prayer and then your um uh, your loved one would be released from purgatory and could go to heaven, all, all stuff like that. People clearly realized that this was nowhere in the Bible. And uh, I, I certainly believe that the Jesuits was an organization created specifically to counter all these people waking up, right, to create counter propaganda, to try and make out as though it was the Protestants who were the beast, etc. Do you believe that at all, Bill? Well, first, I believe that the Jesuit order is entirely Jewish in its founding, that most of its original members were crypto-Jews. And yes, it, it was created, I believe, in the time of, wow, in the time when mafia dons, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek, when mafia dons were controlling the papacy in the 15th century, right? That the, um, and that's about when it started to break apart a little bit, like little schisms, right? Um, people would pop up and, and the Catholics would try to get rid of them. Right. I'm trying to see when the Jesuit order was founded. I believe it was under the Borgias. They were like a, a, a Sicilian or Italian crime family that was actually in, they produced several popes and the De Medici's, right? 
So it was founded in 1534, a little later than I actually thought. And yes, I believe it was founded as a response to the Reformation. The Jesuits had launched the Counter-Reformation, during which, what which ultimately spawned the Thirty Years' War, and and during which many white Christians in Europe died at the hands of these popes and these Jews, who, who they brought the Spanish and and they encouraged um, Sweden. The Kingdom of Sweden at the time was was Catholic and the French and the Spanish into Central Central and Western Europe, into Germanic Europe, in, in order to put down a Reformation and to try to force the German people back into Christian, back into Roman Catholicism. And, and that was the Jesuits who were proponents of that more than any other sect of, of Roman Catholics. They were responsible for that. I see them as being responsible for that beyond all other Catholics into pushing the popes into the Thirty Years' War and the destruction of half of Germany. Yeah, the hidden hand behind the scenes, right? Absolutely. In my opinion, it's not even really hidden. I mean, the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuit role in launching the Counter-Reformation, it is quite well known. I just don't think that mainstream historians and denominational church people can see it as clearly as we do because they think that Jews are people too and that they can convert authentically and sincerely. And of course, every time Jews have converted to Christianity, it's only been to corrupt and to undermine Christianity and to uphold their own lies. That's my opinion. Okay, I guess we could call this an evening. And thank you for being here and praise Yahweh. Yeah, thanks, Ami. We can continue with Daniel next week. Uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European people. Thanks, Ami, Bill. Right. Next week, we'll discuss Daniel a little bit, but I think we'll really be on Revelation chapter 13. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you. Good night.